Everybody, you are listening to Things Observed, and I am your host, Luke Marshall. And today we are going to continue our discussion of the process church of the final judgment. So, in our last episode, we kind of talked about the origin story a little bit. We talked about Robert Moore, or better known as Robert de Grimston, and we talked about Mary Ann McLean, who started the process church. We went into how it kind of started off as an offshoot of Scientology, or at least that they were inspired by Scientology and that they were former Scientologists before they would eventually start their own group that was called Compulsions Analysis, where they would try and rid people of their compulsions and kind of do some mixture between psychoanalysts, psychoanalysis, and Scientology before starting the Process Church, and then we started from the Process Church's inception all the way up until, oh, I don't know, something like 1969 or something like that. We maybe got a little bit ahead of ourselves as as far as the timeline goes, as far as the group moving around and what have you, which they moved around a lot, and I wonder where they got all the money to do all this moving around and to keep buying headquarters and mansions for the members to live in. But anyways, we maybe got a little bit ahead of ourselves in the timeline, but right now we are going to go back to 1968 in the beginning of today's episode because um, where a lot of this information is coming from is the book Love, Sex, Fear, Death by Timothy Wiley, who was one of the former members of the Process Church. Some people say that he was kind of like the number three member of the Process Church, just underneath Robert and Mary. But we are going to go back to 1968 because the way the book is written, it kind of jumps around a little bit in the timeline. It is basically an extended essay by Wiley about his time in the process. And so um, it can kind of be hard to extricate everything from the timeline in the book to match up perfectly. So I think we got a little bit ahead of 1968. But that's where we're going to go back to for the start of this episode because there is something that is very interesting that is mentioned in the book as far as uh, just, yeah, Something that happened in the process to Timothy Wiley in 1968. And it's going to bring an interesting cast of characters into the beginning of today's episode. And that will be Timothy Leary, Abby Hoffman, and Allen Ginsberg. And most of you guys are probably familiar with a lot of these people, if not all three of them, and Jerry Rubin. Um... So Allen Ginsberg, he was a beat poet and author, and he was also 
very arguably a pedophile. I mean, he was part of the group NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association. And uh, if you want to watch something that's really entertaining, a super epic girl boss moment, uh, YouTube, Andrea Dworkin, Allen Ginsberg. And you can see Andrea Dworkin uh, call out Allen Ginsberg. And uh, they were, I want to say like at a bar mitzvah. It's been a long time since I watched the listen to the video but i want to say that they're like at a bar mitzvah and she called out alan ginsburg about it and she would call out alan ginsburg like one other time in her life but she you know alan ginsburg basically said something along the line like you know the conservatives they want to see me put in prison and she said yeah they want to put you in prison but i want you dead <laughs> So uh, we got Allen Ginsberg, who also wrote the famous poem, Howl, which is about Moloch, uh, or at least it talks about Moloch in it, um, the child-eating demon, and, you know, I guess you could say that Ginsberg had a thing or two in common with Moloch, at least as far as their uh, proclivities went. I'm not sure if Allen Ginsberg ever actually abused any children. Let's pray that he didn't. But uh, Timothy Leary, he was the turn-on-tune-in dropout acid guru, and I would say very arguably CIA or something of the sort. It's very interesting how he would get arrested and just kind of elude any harsh punishment. And uh, yeah, just behind the whole, whole counterculture, you know, he was one of the kind of icons of the counterculture and went around promoting LSD use by amongst the uh, young people and he used to be like a what a harvard psychiatrist or, or something like that so i mean you take into account university man in the 50s or whatever and combine that with lsd and not getting in trouble for things that other people would go to prison for a significantly long time for all those things can kind of point to uh cia Abby Hoffman, he was, and Jerry Rubin, they both were just kind of uh, ineffectual protesters who would kind of do these uh, big protest, uh, not big pro, but like big symbolic gestures, things that are a little bit goofy. But anyways, how is it that Timothy Wiley, and I can't remember the name of the other process guy, gets wrapped up around these guys. Well, Timothy Wiley describes how he just kind of finds himself in the East Village and he ends up in a room with these dudes. And so I'm going to read from Love, Sex, Fear, Death for just a second. Michael and I were greeted without too much surprise. Our black garb understood, I imagine, within the sartorial flamboyance of the times. I did catch a sly grin from Dr. Leary, the only one who appeared to notice the red Mindy's goat and the serpentine silver cross around our necks. The subject under discussion quickly became the upcoming Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968, with Abby enthusiastically supporting the idea that it was a prime event to get the Yippies out there and known. The police in various cities in which anti-war demonstrations were occurring were behaving with increasing savagery. A wave of resistance to the Vietnam War had been building for years in the establishment's response in not only brutalizing the demonstrators, but in escalating the numbers being sent to the war 
simply increased the student's anger to an incendiary heat. Abby passionately argued for a real confrontation with the forces of law and order in such large numbers that the police would be overwhelmed, to harness the incredible anger the young were feeling and put it to good use, and it would all be televised. At worst, the police would be seen for their barbarity. And what were a few heads bashed in compared to what the Yippies might achieve? Ginsburg, with his nonviolent ethos, didn't go for Abby's confrontational approach at all. He predicted a bloodbath if demonstrators tried to take the police head on. The best thing would be to have a positive, joyful gathering, a festival of light, he suggested, to demonstrate the contrast with the militarization of the police. And the discussion went on, neither point of view get gaining consensus. At a certain point of impasse, heads turned to Michael and me. We were the outsiders. What did we think? With our doomsday view of the world at the time, we argued for confrontation. So that is not just the end of it, but this is simply where uh, the process meets Timothy Leary, Allen Ginsberg, and uh, yeah, Jerry Rubin, and Abby Hoffman, and all these guys. And so after this, Wiley would go on to have dinner with Timothy Leary and Ginsburg in uh, an Italian restaurant in Greenwich Village where, I don't know, these type of people tend to hang out in Greenwich Village. But um, And this is when Wiley would go on to regale them with stories of his time with William S. Burroughs. And what an interesting cat. And so... He says in the book that he was hanging out with William Burroughs in the 50s. So that means that Wiley knew William Burroughs before his time in the process. And he says in the book that he met Burroughs through his lover, Ian Somerville, who is the true inventor of the dream machine. And I looked into the dream machine and Ian, Somer Ian Somerville just a little bit. And uh, I want to say the guy who's typically credited with creating the dream machine is called Brian Jensen or Jensen, something like that. But uh, the dream machine is basically, long story short, I mean, that could be a whole episode in and of itself, but it's like this machine that modulates alpha brain waves and it can change the user's state of consciousness. And uh, this isn't the only interesting thing that Somerville would do. Once again, this is Burroughs' lover, according to Wiley, and the person who introduced him to Burroughs. Um, Somerville would also help the Beatles with what Wiley calls subtle sonic subliminals. Um, so that's very interesting as well. Um, and these stories that Wiley had with Burroughs were, yeah, before Wiley was ever in the process, because he says that they took place in the late 50s while Burroughs was in Tangier. Um, and so this is where he would initially meet him. But there was also stories that they had together in London as well. So I guess he was kind of friends with Burroughs, at the very least uh, acquaintances. But uh, Burroughs developed an opiate addiction by his time in Tangier. And this is after he accidentally blew his wife's brains out trying to do the William Tell trick, which is uh, typically like you put an apple on somebody's head and try to shoot it off, but it was actually a whiskey glass. So uh, just a lesson to be learned is don't get super drunk and then try to show off with shooting something off your wife's head. But that's assuming that uh, 
that's even the real story. I think that uh, a friend or two who was there were uh, interviewed and that they said that this was the story in conjunction with Burroughs. But who truly knows? But also by the time that he was in Tangier, I think that he like went there looking for some weird jungle drug that I can't remember the name of, but like some psychedelic that he wanted to write about in kind of like an Aldous Huxley doors of perception kind of way. And so, yeah, it would be in Tangier and then in London that London that Wiley would hang out with Burroughs. But um, what I said about Burroughs is by no means the only thing that could be said about Burroughs. Burroughs definitely could be an episode, if not a whole series. He kind of gives me intelligence agency vibes. Um, I can't prove that. I did some looking around into it, but... He just kind of has the uh, aura around him of somebody who was involved in intelligence. And he was also very big into the occult. And this is something that is very easy to figure out. Um, he would talk about all kinds of occult topics in his books. And he would also go on to inspire a wide variety of occultists. One of them, um, who's also inspired greatly by the process and who we are going to be talking about towards the end of today's episode, is Genesis Peorage. And man, oh man, is that really going to be something to, uh, to behold once we get to that point. But let's not get ahead of ourselves quite yet. But just to give you guys some kind of like reference for... Uh, the fact that occult themes definitely did appear in Burroughs' work. I'm going to real briefly read just like a real short per portion from his story, Cities of the Red Knight, which um, I haven't read the book myself, but I think that it might have to do with like some like ritualized murders or ritualized sacrifice type stuff in it. I'm not sure, but Burroughs is no stranger to writing about the kind of most bizarre, most grotesque things one can possibly imagine. Anybody who's read Naked Lunch is definitely familiar with that. But uh, yeah, so here's just a real brief excerpt from it. This is um, him dedicating the book. This book is dedicated to the Ancient Ones, to the Lord of Abominations, Humwawa, whose face is a mass of entrails, whose breath is the stench of dung and the perfume of death dark angel of all that is excreted and sours, lord of decay, lord of the future, who rides on a whispering south wind, to Pazuzu, lord of fevers and plagues, dark angel of the four winds with rotting genitals from which he howls through sharpened teeth over stricken cities, to Cthulhu, the sleeping serpent who cannot be summoned, to Ekkaru, who such the blood of men the, since they desire to become men, and on and on and on. Um, and then the end of this like pretty lengthy dedication says to all the scribes and artists and practitioners of magic through whom these spirits have been manifested. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. So yeah, like, I don't know, dedicating your book to Mesopotamian demons like Pazuzu is certainly a move to say the very least if you guys remember pazuzu was the uh main demon in the exorcist film the one who uh, possesses the little girl um and 
interesting. If you guys want to check out a pretty cool podcast about uh, the guy who wrote The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty, Jimmy Fallon Gong has a great episode of that, one of his novels as Spycraft. But William Peter Blatty was a CIA dude himself and uh, would write The Exorcist. And he would also write and uh, help in the creation of the movie The Exorcist 3, which is about a demonically possessed serial killer and kind of has some slight PTK type vibes in it and it would become a favorite movie of Jeffrey Dahmer and Dahmer would like kind of like watch it to get himself amped up to murder and even like showed it to one of his victims and he was described as you know during the scenes when murder was taking place in the movie that his whole kind of demeanor would change and it was almost like he was becoming possessed himself but anyways that's just a whole big side tangent because got started on this subject of Pazuzu. But anyway, um, so very interesting. But now back to the uh, dinner where he's uh, Wiley's regaling the group about his stories with Burroughs, who is a, certainly a very interesting character. And I think will show up again by the end of this episode. Um, some people theorize, I haven't seen any direct evidence of this, that he was, uh, you know, kind of influenced by the process himself, or at least that he was interested in it. I'm not sure about that, but he uh, definitely was in circles with people who were and was friends with Wiley. But anyways, so now we're going back to Wiley. Wiley would say, after the dinner broke up, Leary insisted that Michael and I come up to Millbrook with him. I'd eventually hit it off with the doctor, so Michael and I climbed into his VW bug and puttered up the West Side Highway. I wasn't quite prepared for what Leary had in mind. He started asking me for my insights about people we both knew and responded with a grunt, neither affirming or denying my observations. After a while, he moved on to people I didn't know, continuing to ask for my psychic perception of them. Now, I knew I was fairly psychic. Back in Europe, I'd already been rewarded by an Italian prince with the gift of an Alfa Romeo spider for psychometrically decoding his family heirloom. So I went on playing Leary's game, simply saying the first answers that came to me. All the four empath sessions and the mediumistic abilities we developed back in London came to my rescue. I must have passed his test because by, by the time we arrived and had crept up the long tree-lined avenue leading to the rambling mansion Dr. Leary had been given for his league for spiritual discovery, he asked us to stay with him in his Indian teepee up on a grassy ridge in the woods behind the mansion. And just take a break real quick from this. I think this mansion that he's referring to is the mansion that we talked about in our Tom DeLong episode um, that was gifted to him by children of the Mellon family um, for his League of Spiritual Discovery. So I think that we already talked about that mansion. and We've already mentioned Timothy Leary before. But anyways, back to the quotation. Exhausted, we wrapped ourselves in blankets and curled up around the fire in the center of the teepee. In the morning, his new wife, Rosemary Woodruff, joined us for breakfast before leaving us alone to talk. And talk we did. I think we were there for two or three days before returning to the city, and we only stopped talking to take the occasional walk and sleep around the fire. Things had just started to go wrong for Dr. Leary. 
He'd already been arrested once in late 1965 and was avoiding a 30-year sentence by challenging the Marijuana Tax Act as, uh, Tax Act as unconstitutional, ultimately winning his appeal in the Supreme Court in 69. But although the court case was on his mind and he treated the accusations with his usual flippancy, that wasn't the matter that most disturbed him. Leary appeared to have reached a watershed in his life. By this time, late in 1967, he was just starting to open his eyes to come to to some of the more unfortunate consequences of his relentless promotion of LSD. In rejecting Aldous Huxley's advice to distribute the enthogen only to the artistic and social elites, Leary had become a willing prophet of the revolution for an entire generation. Millions of young people, most completely unprepared for the intensity of the spirit experience, dropped acid and imagined the world would change. Many of us, and I include myself in this group, had absolutely terrifying early trips along with all the transcendence. Some, a very few considering the overall numbers, couldn't cope with the avalanche of information and fell into psychosis. Haight-Ashbury was becoming an embarrassment. Kids were turning from acid to the harder drugs. The Golden Age delusion, so assiduously boosted by Leary, had finally collapsed at the Altamont concert a couple of years later, and was starting to dissolve for him. Under that wonderful, ever-optimistic smile was a much more troubled soul. I knew why I had been called into his life. He needed a confessor, someone outside his circle who would hear him out. All the guilt and fears of a lapsed Catholic without judging him. Enjoyed being up on pedestals as much he did. He was a born huckster. He had seldom, if ever, let down his guard. He had to be the revolution he was calling for. And then he goes on to talk about how he's a proud man and whatnot. Sorry again, folks, for uh, all of this being so long, my reading of quotations. I need to get better about taking notes, so bear with me. So Wiley just continues for a second to talk about how Leary is a proud man, but how he's kind of becoming disillusioned with the whole hate Ashbury dream that um, had quickly dissolved into madness. I mean, hate Ashbury, I mean, that makes me think of chaos and the Manson family and all the weird MK Ultra type stuff that was going on there. But anyways, Speaking of being disillusioned and MK Ultra, this is really what I wanted to get to in this quotation from Wiley that I am scrolling through. Um, he decided that the only option was publicly to come completely clean about what he'd seen happening with LSD since he had been publicizing it. He would turn around an entire generation. He would expose what he knew the CIA were doing with their MK Ultra project, dosing unsuspecting American citizens with acid. The wisdom of turning in, turning on, turning in, turning on, and dropping out had resulted in the chaos and desperation of hate Ashbury. Dropping out was all very well if there was a splendid new world to drop into. So what else would he put in the place of LSD? What could he tell people to do once they have opened their minds? By this time, I would imagine a certain amount of psychological transference, transference was taking place in the teepee. That can only account for what happened next. He learned something of our beliefs in the course of our time together and evidently respected Michael and me enough to lay his heart bare. Something must have moved him because he suddenly came to the decision to make joining the process church his next move. So, pretty crazy um, thing that most people don't know about Timothy Leary. Once again, just like Burroughs, Leary could be his own series. Um, and I think that there's a lot of good evidence to suggest him probably being CIA. So maybe we will do a series about that at some point and 
I can do a deep dive into Timothy Leary. And one thing that I'll say is I'm pretty sure that most people who spent a a weekend in a teepee with Timothy Leary dropped acid for sure. So Timothy Wiley and this other guy from The Process might be the only people to have ever spent that much time with Timothy Leary, much less in a teepee without, uh, you know, taking some tabs. But anyhow, so Leary decides that he is going to join The Process Church. That is up until he goes to a Sabbath assembly with Wiley and the speaker at the Sabbath assembly, because they basically have just a random person from the process, um, get up and do the talking at each different one. And apparently it was one of the group's biggest dullards. And so Larry is watching this guy kind of bumble his way through speaking. And this guy was not the brightest and he was confusing historical events and figures with different people and apparently Wiley was pretty embarrassed of the whole thing and Leary departed and Wiley said that he would not see him for 20 years Um, and I was really wondering like I was hoping that he would explain it like when did you guys meet 20 years later what did you guys talk about what was going on but he doesn't mention it but anyways I just thought that it was very interesting to say the least that um, Timothy Leary was very, very close to joining the Process Church of the Final Judgment. And another reason I just wanted to share that little bit is the process is really crazy because, you know, I can't prove in a lot of cases that the process had like a huge influence on a certain person or on a certain historical event, but just their ability to just be in different places and to come into contact with all different kinds of countercultural icons and to be vaguely associated with, you know, whether it be Manson, Son of Sam, uh, the countercultural giants that are Timothy Leary, Allen Ginsberg, Wiley having known William Burroughs, uh, just, and, and, and the list goes on and on and on it's just like crazy it really rattles the mind to think about it and so i don't know what it means in every case i'm sure some of these cases you know are just as organic and happenstance as wiley describes but i mean at some point it just kind of becomes hard to believe that i mean like the process church is like the forest gump of satanism <laughs> they're just like I guess, bumbled their way into, like, you know, having connections to all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, that reminds me of the time that I was with Timothy Leary and Allen Ginsberg planning what we're going to do at the 1968 Democratic Convention. Uh, It's nuts. But anyways, I'm going off on a tangent. So let's get back to talking about the history of the process church so we can wrap this up before long so the processions would then go on to move to new york and uh it was in new york where the whole you know greenwich village uh timothy leary thing happened anyways and when they moved to new york they would be in what wiley describes as cramped living quarters 
and he described it kind of like as one of those experiments where you put a bunch of rats in overcrowded living conditions and they all begin to turn belligerent and so this is a kind of when a lot of crazy stuff starts to happen in the process and one of the things that he describes happening in the book is that um, while they were supposed to be selling magazines one of the members took a smoke break and due to him taking a smoke break when he was supposed to be selling magazines he kind of caught the ire of Marianne and this is when they would take this guy when they got back to their cramped living quarters and they tied him to a chair and beat him slapped kick hit him and Wiley says that this was more to humiliate him more than anything not to inflict physical bodily harm but I don't know you have to take into account that Wiley was also helping dish out and he you know kind of just describes it as mob mentality they all you know beat up on this guy and he was one of the people who was less liked in the group and so you have this aggression and this tension that's kind of building due to their cramped living quarters of course robert and marianne as always you know have their own setup and are living the high life while everybody's kicking up their money from the magazine sales up to them and it would also be during this time frame that the group would receive small donations from all kinds of people back to kind of like just the forrest gump aspect of everything this was also the year when we met Jackie Kennedy and Miles Davis. Um, <laughs> you know, just continuing to stumble into all kinds of interesting people. And they would also have uh, conversations, sit-downs with some other interesting people, such as the artist Salvador Dali and Stan Lee of Marvel Comics. And Wiley says that, you know, kind of hit it off with Stan Lee and that he was a very intelligent man who was interested in their idea and the reconciliation of opposites, which is a big part of process theology. Um, I mean, they take love your enemy to like such a large extent to where like Jesus loves Satan and kind of the bringing together of all things opposite. And uh, yeah. So apparently Stan Lee was interested in this idea and the reconciliation of opposite and Lee would even give Wiley permission permission uh, to use Marvel characters in one of the cartoon pastiches of in the process magazine. So very interesting. Then the group would yet again move to Holland and they just keep moving and moving and moving. Like when I was coming up with the notes for this episode, I'm honestly like gonna even skip some moves that they do because it's just insane i mean it seems like every few months they're moving setting up a new chapter somewhere else dissolving a chapter in another place setting up headquarters here then there i mean they are very international and they're just bouncing all around but yeah the group would move to holland for a brief stint and they would kind of disperse throughout europe 
Rothschild style, where you have people moving to different places in Europe, setting up their own operations, what have you. Um, and when they made it back to London from their stint in Holland, this is when Wiley would begin his work on the sex issue of the magazine. And it was also at this time when Robert would have his dog, who he named Jesus. After the dog passed away, he would have the dog taxidermied. Um, so just another interesting uh, little tidbit. And also Wiley and another Processian would pay a visit to UFO researcher Arthur Shuttlewood. And Wiley describes himself as having like a lifelong fascination with UFOs. And, and another thing that he just kind of yet again like offhandedly mentions and doesn't get into any specific details about it. He's just like, based off of some experiences I had as a child, I've had a lifelong fascination with UFOs, but he doesn't get into what these experiences he had as a child were. So I'd be interested to know about that. Perhaps I'll have to read another book um, by Timothy Wilde, because he has books where he's talking about extraterrestrial and um, other intelligences outside of uh, humans and animals and stuff. I even think that he like gets into like dolphin intelligence and stuff. Like, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy who gave LSD to dolphin so he could like try to telepathically communicate with him. So he kind of gets into some weird stuff. But anyways, he would meet up with uh, the UFO researcher Arthur Shuttlewood who isn't currently a big name in UFO circles. I had never heard of him, but um, they would drive a, in a car together that they had borrowed from Dick Grimston's father. And during the drive, they heard a loud thump on the top of the car, but when they got out, they could not figure out what caused the, the loud thump. And apparently Shuttlewood instantly got paranoid and began to think that it was aliens and he would write in uh, his next book about the experience and all of a sudden Wiley and his processian buddy were the aliens in this story and the loud thud kind of took on a ridiculous importance to Shuttlewood so there's kind of a funny story and next the process would open up a chapter in Rome and when they set up their chapter in Rome they did the classic magic guy pilgrimage to the Abbey of Thelema. Now, if you guys have listened to it, if not, I would suggest that you do. It's one of my favorite episodes, perhaps my favorite episode, um, the Alfred Kinsey episode. It's actually the first episode of Things Observed. And I really think in that episode that I dug up some stuff that nobody else really has dug up or the few people who have dug it up, they didn't bring everything together in as cohesive a whole as uh, I did in that episode. So I'm pretty proud of that one. I really think that I found some good information there. Some of my other episodes, I mean, it's more just relaying information as I as I read it and just trying to bring together disparate things into one topic but as far as actual research I mean I think that that's one where I uh, really stumbled upon some things that I don't think other people had put together and I think uh, that I did a pretty good job of showing that it is most likely that 
Kinsey was involved with some sort of CIA, possibly MK Ultra type stuff and just a lot of his interesting ties. But we would talk in that episode about how Kinsey would visit the Abbey of Thelema with Kenneth Anger, who uh, made the film Lucifer Rising uh, and is a big Crowley head and a creepy dude in general. And uh, it just kind of seems like this is a weird dude rite of passage going to the Abbey of Thelema. And so Wiley writes in his book, in Sicily, I couldn't resist searching out Alistair Crowley's Abbey of Thelema at Cephalu. None of the locals still dared to go there, decades after the great beast and his entourage had departed. Smaller than I had expected, it was falling to pieces, vegetation growing inside the dank rooms. The only thing that remained, and what was most likely to have kept the faithful away, were the fading erotic and magical images painted directly on the whitewashed walls. A few days later, I found my companion and me in Palermo, having an audience with a withered and somewhat nervous cardinal of Palermo, although what he made of the Mindy symbols on our shirt was probably lost in translation. I imagine we would have been arrogant enough to oppress the old primate with the contradictions that we saw at the center of Christianity. If the master commanded that we should love our enemies, doesn't that mean we should love Satan? Crowley, the old mage, would have been proud of us. Which, ma'am... I personally don't want Crowley to be proud of me, but I suppose whatever floats your boat. But anyways, just very interesting to note that some processions made their way out to the Abbey of Thelema and that this was something that was very important to Timothy Wiley to go do while he was out in the area. And uh, yeah, we if you want to get a little bit more about just the history of the Abbey of Thelema, can check out the Kinsey episode, go into a little bit more detail there. One of the reasons that Kinsey went there is he wanted to uh, look at the erotic murals that um, were painted there. And I've heard some rumors about it being uh, pretty hellish, the stuff that was uh, put up on the walls there. And the room in the house that Crowley stayed, I want to say that it was called like the Chamber of Nightmares or something is what he termed it. And just, like, put up demons and entities that he had, uh, you know, supposedly made contact with or had seen up on the walls. All kinds of crazy stuff. A lot of crazy rituals took place at the Abbey of Thelema. I think that's where the infamous one that involved Crowley's woman and a goat took place. Um, no need to go any deeper into that. But anyways, a classic weird guy pilgrimage. But the process would open up a chapter in Rome, and then they would open up a chapter in Boston before Robert and Mary would move from London to Key Largo, Florida, because they radiate Florida energy. And by that, I mean bizarre. Um, but anyways, um, in 1971, the Balfour Place chapter would close, and yeah, Robert and Marianne would... What else but move again to Toronto and open up a Canadian chapter? And it was during this time that the uniforms changed from black to gray. And the orgies, which hadn't been taking place for a while, got started back up again. And when they moved up to Toronto, according to Wiley, he says, Whereas I might have credited Marianne for organizing the early orgies as a way of helping us to come to terms with our sexual repression, these new ones seem to me to point to a rather different motive. 
The inner circle of the senior members all knew each other so well by this time that to have sex felt silly and irrelevant. So when Marianne, ever the dominatrix, put unlikely people together, she was clearly doing it for her own purposes. Although I wouldn't have been able to recognize this as manipulation at the time, I should have been able to see it when, during one of the orgies, she took me up to her bedroom and announced she was going to have sex with me. Whether she had done this with any of my colleagues, I have no idea, since I had never seen any signs of it. She, like Robert, certainly never joined in with the orgies, always sitting back and directing the action. And he says that, you know, of course he was excited to have sex with Marianne because, you know, she's the goddess, <laughs> um, which we talked about in the last episode. And uh, he, this would also involve... Uh, something that is kind of graphically depicted by Wiley, so I won't go into it, but she puts a certain digit up his posterior, and he kind of speculates as to uh, whether this was to degrade him, a sign of power, if she thought that that would be something that he was personally into. But anyways, I just thought that that passage was interesting, because we talked about some of the orgies and some of the weird sex stuff that went on during that time. Um, in the last episode but i just thought that it was interesting that here he kind of makes the connection that this um is more about power and control than about you know just transgressing sexual taboos and trying to get past whatever repression it was that that they had and i think that uh he hit the nail on the head right there i think that probably from the start that this was all kind of a means of, uh, yeah, uh, of control. Because you, dear listeners, are familiar with the fact that uh, sexual black... Can you get? I wanna know if you can get to 
loving days are done I text you sign with the love and kiss a later Come back shining so fishing funny all get to that So, also during this time, they would come into contact with yet more famous people. One of them would be the uh, genius behind Funkadelic, George Clinton. And Father Malachi, one of the processians, was the one who made the, uh, who initially met him. And he would spend a whole afternoon with George Clinton in a Toronto recording studio. And George Clinton would become impressed by um, Malachi's intelligence, and he would end up putting as like one of the sleeves on one of their albums, just like a whole processian uh, editorial um, in the album Maggot Brain, which uh, pretty good album, pretty good band, Funkadelic. So uh, it was very interesting to learn about how interested he became by the process and this is just one of many musicians who would become greatly influenced by the process so while in canada they would also have someone from the canoidian gosh darn the canadian royal mounted police um uh, an individual from the canadian royal mounted police would attempt to infiltrate the group but Wiley says that they very quickly figured out that this guy, Bill Clement, was sent by the RCMP to check him out and that they would quickly become friends with him and that this guy, this agent, apparently didn't feel at home inside the establishment that he served and so that he would kind of become like a double agent for the process and would feed them information that uh, could be of use to the process. And uh, so that's certainly interesting. And it was also during their time in Canada when some members from the group would be brought onto a television show to talk about their belief systems and the process. And surprise, surprise, kind of turned people off. And this would kind of be a pivotal, pivotal moment for the group. And it would kind of be when things started to unravel to a certain degree and certain tensions would begin to arise in the group and in 1972 the process would go on to open chapters in miami and another in new york city as well as a radio show which they operated through the university of boston and robert and marianne would also travel and visit faith healers and all kinds of other gurus and what have you kind of taking notes on uh what it is that they could do and faith healing would soon become an activity of the process church and they would also move the group once again to new york and they would rent for twenty five hundred dollars a month a mansion from ruth gordon and something that's very interesting about ruth gordon is she is one of the women who played one of the satanists in rosemary's baby 
And once again, I talked earlier about the Jimmy Fallon Gong episode where he talks about William Peter Blatty, the author of The Exorcist. And in that same episode, he talks about Ira Levin, who was the author of Rosemary's Baby, another guy who was involved with intelligence. So it's kind of interesting that all these intelligence guys are writing stories during this time frame of demonic possession and um, these books very quickly get turned into movies which are widely promoted and seen by a bunch of people and yeah are about demonic possession and satanism and in the case of rosemary's baby the creation of the antichrist so all very interesting and it's very interesting that the process would rent a home from one of the people who played a Satanist in Rosemary's Baby. And this home was where they would become neighbors to none other than Catherine Hepburn. So just kind of goes back to that whole uh, Forrest Gump style of they just kind of managed to stumble their way into all these kinds of interesting things and meet all these sort of interesting uh, culturally relevant people. And it was during the New York phase that Robert and Mary's relationship would begin to suffer and they would eventually break up and the cult would be totally, you know, the cult would be totally rebranded after their breakup when Marianne took the reins of power and became the sole leader of the process. And so um, I'm going to read some hot goss in relationship in relation to the breakup from Wiley. So let's see what this hot goss entails. So Wiley says, The row that had been simmering between Marianne and Robert for the previous months, which in my opinion must have been exacerbated by the loss of the London court case, boiled over in a series of embarrassing incidents. It was hard to know what was going on behind the Omega's closed doors, but as one of the inner circle, I witnessed Marianne at her manipulative worst. While I can't say with complete certainty that she set up Robert for his fall from grace, from her treatment of me in a later situation, it's a reasonable assumption. All we could see at the time was that Marianne had appeared to encourage Robert to sexualize his relationship with Mother Morgana, his closest protege. Perhaps it is true, as has been suggested by some, that Robert was hoping for a menage a trois, and it was this that had so enraged Marianne that she kicked him out. Yet, even if this is so, it would have only been the precipitating an event in what was already a disintegrating relationship and an oversimplification of Mary Ann's motives. And uh, so the court case that they're talking about, the London court case, they had sued Ed Sanders um, for his book, The Family, in regards to what he wrote about the process. And it was successful in America, and Ed Sanders would have to retract um, from all subsequent editions of the book, the chapter on the process. But in London, they lost that court case. And Wiley says that if you go and read the court transcripts, which I did not do, so um, I guess we'll just have to take his word on it unless I decide to read those court transcripts, which I really honestly don't plan on doing, but that the judge was kind of a conservative who had an ax to grind with the process. So this judge would, you know, just throw the case out basically and the process would lose that time and apparently Marianne was pretty confident that they would win and something that Wiley cites as a big mistake in which the judge did not look kindly upon was the fact that Robert who was the figurehead of the group and who was you know widely believed by most to have been the 
uh, brains behind this whole entire operation was uh, absent from the court case because Marianne was basically like, you don't even have to dignify them by going there or whatever. But it ended up not looking so great on their end. And like, you know, Robert just wasn't willing to go and, you know, defend himself before all of these people. And so they would lose that court case. But I have right here, I'm currently picking it up off my desk and I'm holding it in my hand, the first edition of The Family by Ed Sanders. Had to go online to get it. Um, it's in pretty good condition. And since it's first edition, it has the whole entire chapter on the process church. And I'm excited to dive deep into this book so that way and one of our next episodes we will have one on the son of sam and one on the manson murders and whether or not the process church had anything to do in either case so uh pretty exciting to have a first edition of the family look forward to diving deep into that with you guys and getting down to the truth but anyways so we have this possible menage a trois that uh, Robert was aiming for, but didn't come to fruition. Whatever the real reason is for their breakup, Robert and Marianne break up, and Robert would be ousted from the process. And he would go on to try and start up other groups, you know, um, kind of take the process with him and do his own thing with it, but he would fail in all these different attempts. Um, because, you know, really, Marianne, to a large extent, was the process. And she was the one who had the ability to control people and to have everybody kick up money back to her. And she was uh, not the theological brains behind the operation, but she was the operational brains. Um, and so Robert would fail on all those attempts, and he would eventually just kind of sink back into private life. So when Robert left, all mention of Satan and Lucifer would basically be dropped from the process, at least on the public stage. According to Wiley, um, it was still part of the theology, but that was kind of more reserved for inner processians, and they weren't as uh, flamboyant in their satanic and luciferian imagery and that wasn't something that they were putting out there for public consumption you really had to be kind of on the inside before you uh, were revealed that and so the focus would turn more towards jehovah whom wiley describes as a more authoritarian personality that was fitting of mary I don't know if I would agree with that characterization of Jehovah, but, you know, that's how Wiley and I guess Marianne perceived it. And the goat of Mendes would disappear from their shirts and they would no longer be wearing their silver crosses, no more, you know, all black everything. But instead they would be wearing these silver outfits with large stars of David's embossed on them with a double F in the center for the new name change that is the foundation faith of the millennium um, so the group would start a theater and rent it out to others during this time as well as hosting a science fiction series of lectures with some interesting guests like isaac asimov and harlan ellison and 
Isaac Asimov is obviously one of the most popular science fiction authors of all time. And his son, I believe his name is David Asimov, if I remember correctly. Um, pretty horrible guy. His son would go on to have what many people refer to as the largest child pornography uh, collection ever to be found. But it's worse than that. It was a child... He processed child pornography and so uh and then he would get like parole or something which was crazy and you can thank robert Mueller <laughs> for for that so um all pretty crazy hopefully i have all my facts straight on that it's been a while since i uh, had learned about that but anyway so they have some interesting characters and that was isaac asimov's son so not to be confused that crime with isaac asimov but it does kind of bring into question uh, i don't know maybe if that guy was picking up in the family trade i don't know anyways that's highly speculative but um they would begin to do faith healings, the Foundation Church, formerly the process, but now the Foundation Church would be doing these faith healings, and they would even perform a faith healing for the segregationist racist governor, George Wallace. And uh, perhaps when I promote this episode on Twitter, I will put a picture of them doing this faith healing on George Wallace. And they would also begin to do psychic readings which would become a big source of revenue for the group. So when Robert and Marianne were looking at all these different gurus and psychics and faith healers and stuff, they would kind of get this idea for psychic readings, and it would end up being a big, uh, big source of revenue for the group. And they would bring in a psychic by the name of Hilda Brown, who was an associate of Andresia Puarik, who worked for the military, surprise, surprise, and he would um, work at Edgewood Arsenal, where the military tested chemical warfare agents and drugs on humans in vicious experiments. And he would also be the one who found Yuri Geller, who we discussed in our Tom DeLonge series. So um, we have an associate of this military guy, Andrija Puarik um, go to work with the process. So I couldn't find anything about if Hilda Brown was herself involved with intelligence agencies or anything like that. But, you know, she's just a stone's throw away from it. So one can only wonder, which I really would have liked to have figured out if she was or something, because I have very much so been wanting to find a direct intelligence connection to the process church and so yeah robert he attempted to restart the process church in some sort of form but he failed to do though he wanted to start like a process college all this would fail and the foundation would kind of continue to do all of this stuff and I didn't really find all that much that was very interesting about the foundation faith of the millennium so I'm not even gonna bother going into really any details from that just because I don't feel like it's of great interest and in 1977 Timothy Wiley and about 15 other members of the foundation would leave after a schism arose in their group 
between what Wiley described as the universalist and the purist. So Wiley and the other universalists, they kind of wanted to outreach with people of different groups and denominations and have a more accepting approach. And then you have the purist who really wanted to stick to the ideology to the religious beliefs as they had been laid down by the group and so it caused this conflict and eventually um, Timothy and some others would kind of split off from the foundation and they would try to do their own thing and kick money back up to the foundation so you'd have these two different groups you know the universalists doing their things and the purists led by Marianne doing their things, but they would all continue to kick money back up to Marianne, but she just kept demanding more and more money. So eventually, um, the they, once no longer under the thumb of Marianne, constantly kind of began to question their allegiance to her, and Wiley and 15 others would leave the faith of the foundation. And in 1982, the foundation would move to Utah, and start the Best Friends Animal Society. And in 1993, the foundation would completely dissolve and all religious language would be dropped and they would just be an animal uh, rescue, a, a, the largest like no-kill animal um, dog reserve or whatever the proper name is for it. Um, animal sanctuaries that's that's the term that i was looking for and then mary ann would die and let me see here i want to make sure that i got this right she would die in 2005 and in love sex fear and death wiley says that the rumor that went around is that she was viciously killed by dogs <laughs> at the animal sanctuary and Wiley describes that she was basically the same up until the day of her death. And something interesting is her final home um, that she would have on the land in Utah, which I can't remember exactly how much land it is, but it's like a ridiculous amount of land that they would have up there. But she would basically like create her house to like look somewhat like an Egyptian mausoleum or something like that and uh wiley asked her you know what the deal is behind this um and i can't remember exactly what it was that she said but you know basically that she was preparing for death so kind of uh interesting to say the least and it would be very fitting if the woman who viewed herself as hecate and who was you know the like dog goddess or, <laughs> or whatever um died by getting mauled by animals but anyways we kind of rushed through the last little bit of the processes story just because i really just don't find um it to be all that interesting a lot of the stuff that has to do with the foundation and a lot of the juicy information and the relevant and important information um kind of ceases to exist after that time um but anyways, we, before concluding this episode on the process, we got a couple more things that I want to talk about that I think is uh, of interest to us. 
And the next couple things that we're going to talk about is we'll end off the episode talking about someone who I just learned about, Genesis Peoridge, um, who was greatly inspired by the process and a musician and who would have um, great influence on a bunch of other people. But before then, we can just talk a little bit about the beliefs of the process church and their treatment of children. And so... I'm going to read something from one of Robert de Grimston's logics. So the logics are things that he would come up with, which were basically like axioms that had to pretty much be memorized by members of the process and are like kind of their core beliefs. And Wiley describes this um, kind of as the core axiom among all of them. And so Robert wrote, basically, we are not human beings. We are universal beings, free souls journeying through time. And we have chosen to be human as part of our journey. As part of our journey, we have taken on the limitations of the human existence and therefore become subjects to its laws. We have chosen for a period to limit the extent of our choice. So let us be quite, quite clear that everything that happens to us is, on some level or another, our choice, our decision, and therefore our responsibility. And. Timothy Wiley rightly points out that this type of view of everything being your own fault, anything bad that could possibly fall upon you um, is your fault, can lead to what he describes as an institutionalized fascism. You know, um, you're... You being sick is your own fault. You being poor is your own fault. You Jews getting holocausted is your own fault. Everything that could possibly happen is your own fault. But also something that Timothy kind of uh, mentions, which is interesting, is sometimes uh, Robert and Marianne would kind of uh, make an exception when it came to themselves. But anyways, so this... You know, notion that we are just kind of spirits and human guys is something that's also like very Gnostic. So it's kind of like this weird Gnostic fascist view of life. But anyway, that's kind of the core axiom of the process is that everything is your fault. And so now I will read yet another quote. This one is a slight bit longer. So bear with me, but this comes from Robert de Grimston in um, the process book, The Gods on War. But I think it's kind of a succinct description of their theology. So Robert writes, Consciously or unconsciously, apathetically, half-heartedly, enthusiastically or fanatically, under countless other names than those by which we know, them, and under innumerable disguises and descriptions, men have followed the three great gods of the universe ever since the creation, each one according to his nature. For the three gods represent three basic human patterns of reality. Within the framework of each pattern, there are countless variations and permutations, widely varying grades of suppression and intensity. Yet each one represents a fundamental problem, a deep-rooted driving force, a pressure of instincts and desires, terrors and revulsions. All three of them exist to some extent in every one of us, but each of us leans more heavily towards one of them, whilst the pressures of the other two provide the presence of conflict and uncertainty. Jehovah, the wrathful God of vengeance and retribution, demands discipline, courage, and ruthlessness, 
and a single-minded dedication to duty, purity, and self-denial. All of us feel those demands to some degree, some more strongly and more frequent than others. Lucifer, the light bearer, urges us to enjoy life to the full, to value success in human terms, to be gentle and kind and loving, and to live in peace and harmony with one another. Man's apparent inability to value success without descending into greed, jealousy, and an exaggerated sense of his own importance has brought the God. Lucifer into disrepute. He has become mistakenly identified with Satan. Satan, the receiver of transcendent souls and corrupted bodies, instills in us two directly opposite qualities. At one end, an urge to rise above all human and physical needs and appetites, to become all soul and no body, all spirit and no mind, and all other and all and at the other end, a desire to sink beneath all human values, all standards of morality, all ethics, all human codes of behavior, and to wallow in a morass of violence, lunacy, and excessive physical indulgence. But is the lower end of saying natures that men fear, which is why Satan, by whatever name, is seen as the adversary. So that was Robert de Grimston in The Gods on War. So in this book that Robert wrote, The Gods on War, he also has um, sections where he writes as each one of the various gods. And uh, a lot of people will, you know, bring quotes out from specifically the section on Satan, um, which has some pretty crazy stuff saying, you know, like thou shalt kill and stuff like that. And, you know, say that this is a process church belief, which is kind of like a half truth or I guess like a third truth, because then they don't read from, you know, the the other sections and it's not Robert writing as himself but Robert writing you know as these different gods and something that Robert says inside a he wrote like a very very brief uh, entry into Timothy Wiley's book at Timothy Wiley's request and basically all that Robert de Grimston um, says is that you know basically people had said some pretty slanderous stuff about us and that we didn't view, or at least he didn't view, the gods to be real, but to be, you know, kind of like archetypes that represent different things inside of humanity, like different psychological forces and stuff like that. So, uh, but it's, it's also, I don't know if that's completely true or if that's him just kind of wanting to put out a certain version out there because i'm not saying that they believe necessarily in the three gods as literal but like it wasn't all just like psychoanalysis uh, you know either like there definitely was a real spiritual component to the belief system of the process church but um so anyways yeah you have the three gods and christ is like in their theology, the unifying force behind all of these different things, the thing that helps reconcile all of these seemingly opposing forces. And uh, then that's where you kind of get like the four gods in the process church theology. And, you know, some may associate more with others. And anyhow, we talked a little bit about that in the first episode. But uh, now... Before we conclude our episode, we'll real briefly talk about the role of children in the process church. And let me just say that the children in the process church were completely uh, 
what would be the term for it? Disregarded. They were often viewed as an impediment to spiritual progress. And this is something that Timothy cites as something that really bothered him. And it's something that bothered some of the other members. And I couldn't do as good of a job of explaining this as one of the former members of the Process Church because in the book Love, Sex, Fear, and Death, um, if you want to learn more about the process, it's a very good resource. But it isn't just Timothy writes the bulk of it, but then afterwards there are some entries from other members of the Process Church, former members. And one of them, I can't remember the name of this woman. I should have jotted it down in my notes. But let's just read what she has to say about her experience when it comes to children in the process church. And we can get a good idea of the treatment of, their of the cult's children, the cult members' children. Um, the rules concerning parents and children seemed arbitrary, harsh, and sometimes just mean. I was punished, for example, by being shunned for insisting on medical care for my son, who ended up in a hospital, and then again for coming to his aid after a traumatic event. One processian confided in me that her child was taken in the middle of the night, that she had no idea where the child was living, and she was not to speak of it. Another told me that after her baby had died of SIDS in New Orleans, she was transferred right away to another chapter and was forbidden to tell anyone that her baby was dead. I was allowed to receive prenatal care only one month prior to giving birth. I was not permitted to go to the hospital once I'd entered labor until the higher-ups said I could, and I was in labor for 36 hours. At the time, I was living in a room with one other woman. I had the bottom bunk, she had the top, and about seven children. Mother Diana had her second child, Lucius, who, who was the father, taken away from her immediately after she gave birth. I don't know if she knew where the child was. In Chicago, the children were cared for during the day by a woman with a heroin problem and an ex-con who used to wash paper diapers for refuse. There were unconfirmed allegations of sexual abuse of the children. They were left alone at night in their first floor apartment. One child, Daniel, aged eight or nine, leapt from the roof and fell on his back and was refused medical care. When I first got to the city, I was asked to go to the kitchen to help prepare a meal. I heard little kids' voices from a room off the kitchen. The room turned out to be a pantry. When I opened the door, I found two approximately 18-month-old babies in nothing but dirty diapers, in a 3x8 room with a couple of windows placed near the ceiling of the room. This is where they spent their whole days. When we were told money was tight and all food was retrieved, Sister Julia fed her premature twins tea instead of formula for at least a couple of weeks. Her mother had to give her a charge card so she was able to buy formula for the infants. And so that is just a brief insight into the role that children took in the process church, which was not a very good one. And uh, just kind of gives you an idea about the cult itself. You can learn a lot about people by both the way that they treat their children and by the way that they treat animals and so it's kind of interesting that in the process that you kind of have this um, inversion where um, animals are the most highly regarded thing and children are if anything viewed to be an impediment to spiritual growth and now before we wrap up this episode there is just one last thing that i want to talk about and that is genesis p orridge 
So I find a lot of this stuff to be very interesting to say the least. I was not familiar with Genesis Peorge prior to doing all of this research, but um, it is a very popular, or maybe not very popular, but very influential industrial artist. Um, so she's kind of one of those people who would go on to influence a bunch of people, and she's known by real music heads, but her music itself isn't that popular, but we all know of people like Nine Inch Nails, for instance, and if I remember correctly, Trent Reznor cited Genesis Peorge as either his main or one of his main influences and something that led him to make his own music, but Genesis Peorge, uh, can't remember her birth name, was born a male and would transition, um, but she would create industrial records and would use Auschwitz gas ovens as the logo. Um, so you can kind of see that a little bit of an edge lord, to say the least. She was a disciple of Burroughs, Brian Jason, um, who we mentioned earlier when we were talking about the dream machine, and who else but Alistair Crowley. So those are some of the main influences, as well as the Process Church. And in Love, Sex, Fear, Death, um, she ends up writing um, kind of like the afterword about her own experience um, when she created her uh, The Temple of Psychic Youth. So she would initially found, found a band called Throbbing Gristle, which is a reference to an erect penis. And then she would go on to create a band called Psychic TV. And Psychic TV, in addition to being a band, would kind of have a literal cult following, like actually a cult following, because they would create, she would create the Temple of Psychic Youth. And so it was kind of this project where people didn't just listen to the music, but they wanted to create a whole lifestyle around it that was all aimed at basically creating a higher version of man and getting past all of societal taboos and all kinds of trauma in the past through transgression and through the occult. And they, she used the Temple of Psychic Youth to get fans to commit to this lifestyle and she would collect all of the process writings and she would even receive aid from members of the process as to how to go about doing the temple of psychic youth and so she would actually say that timothy wiley is someone who she would use as uh kind of like a, a guide and she would constantly talk to Wiley and ask what it is that she should do in starting the Temple of Psychic Youth and try to improve upon the process and she also looked to the process for a lot of the groups and a lot of psychic type, psychic TV's aesthetic and if there is one thing that you can kind of commend the process on is they do know a thing or two about aesthetic and um, in the book, a lot of the images that are used come from Genesis Peorge because she collected literally every 
process writing that existed. So she kind of has the library of Alexandria of process literature. And so they would uh, go, um, Wiley would go to her to get a lot of the images that are used from the magazine and what have you. But we will uh, read from Fiona Russell Powell, who knew Genesis Peorge and would go on to write an article about her, um, just kind of about psychic TV and the temple of psychic use. So this comes from Fiona Russell Powell, and I will do my best to remember to link the article in the show notes so you can go read the whole thing for yourself. But Powell would say, Fans of Psychic TV were invited to join the Temple of Psychic U for a fee. 23 was chosen as a sacred numbering, sacred number following William Burroughs' discovery of the esoteric 23 enigma. Psychic TV are in the Guinness Book of Records for producing 23 albums in 23 months, all released on the 23rd day of that month. It was aimed primarily at disaffected youth, and its followers seemed to be mostly teenage boys at boarding school who were lonely, angry, and looking for a cause, and easy to manipulate. To be initiated, the wannabe psychic youth had to send in samples of his bodily fluids on the 23rd day of every month, blood, semen, saliva. Along with these, they had to write down in detail their masturbatory fantasies while being solemnly assured that these would never be opened or read instead being placed in a vault for posterity. I saw with my own eyes what happened to those spotty youths' naive outpourings of their newly dawning sexual yearnings. Genesis and Paula opened them, read them aloud, pissed themselves laughing, and then invited the boys whose photos they found the most appealing to stay with them. Paula seduced him while Jen watched. It's one way to keep a marriage going, I suppose. After witnessing all that, no wonder at home with the Peorges was firmly burned into my memory. And so, um, yeah, you had to, and they would use these bodily fluids and all this stuff and to, as like magical charge, and they would have people also send in, their fans send in sigils, and they would all be kept in the same place. And so it was basically this thing where the magical rituals were, um, you know, just done by a very large group of people. And so that was kind of one of the ideas behind Psychic TV and the Temple of Psychic Youth. And um, also, she mentions in this the 23 Enigma, which was started by William Burroughs. Um, it's actually where the idea from the movie 23 starring Jim Carrey comes from. But also, um, something interesting to note is a lot of people equate 23 with 666 because two-thirds of one is 0.6 repeating. And so, yeah, you have uh, this whole 23 enigma, and they would put 23 on their shirts and would dress in uh, a certain manner. But now we can read from Genesis Peorge writing in Love, Fear, Sex, and Death. And she was saying, when I began to read about Western magic, in particular Austin Osmond Spare, I came across the W.S. Bainbridge book, Satan's Power on the Process, which rekindled my interest and feeling of kinship with the group. When I co-founded Psychic TV with Alex Ferguson in 1981, it was with another integrated project in mind. 
During long winter discussions with my inspirational collaborator, Monty Caza, we considered what might happen if a rock band, instead of just seeing fans as an income flow and an ego booster, focused that admiration and energy toward a cultural and lifestyle directing network. What would happen if we created a paramilitary occult organization that shared demystified magical techniques? Sleeve notes could become manifestos, a call to action and behavioral rebellion. Bit by bit, we took this daydream more seriously. We examined the process in particular for the best in cult aesthetics. We needed an ideology, levels to achieve, secrets to reveal to those involved, symbols and uniforms, regalia, and internal writings. We called our experimental organization the Temple of Psychic Youth. Topi's uniform com combined gray priest shirts we bought out of Roman Catholic suppliers with gray military-style trousers and combat boots, embroidered patches in the vicia vaginal shape with a psychic cross, and the number 23 were sewn on jackets and shirts to identify the Topi community. We looked again at the process and saw that the long hair and beards had a powerful impact once collected together in mass. The topi haircut had a long tail of hair at the back of the head, and then the rest of the head was shaved in reference to the ascetic spiritual disciplines. Ascetic and decadent, the contradictory eternal balance. The psychic cross was the most instantly effective strategy for generating the impression of a serious, focused, militant network. The psychic youth look was so strong that it seduced and attracted males and females to adopt it quickly. A handful of psychic youth dressed up had an immediate visceral impact far beyond what might be expected from such small numbers. And so, also, something that is interesting when we are talking about the Temple of Psychic Youth in Genesis Peorage is just... Uh, how not to sound overly moralist but just kind of like how debauched um a lot of the stuff that genesis peorge was interested in was and so this again comes from fiona russell powell and she would talk about the nursery and the nursery was in london where genesis peorge was stationed he had she had what they called the nursery which was uh the sex and ritual room, which was all black with a pentagram on the wall. And uh, we'll just let Fiona Russell Powell take it from there. And also just keep in mind that it's called the nursery, which is disgusting. The Peorges mostly occupied the upper two floors of the house. The main room on the ground floor was used as their sexual playroom, which they called the nursery. It was cold and smelt of piss with whips, chains, and instruments of torture hanging on the walls. A coffin sat in the middle of the room, and the prized possession was an old dentist chair, which Jen claimed had belonged to a dentist in the 1950s who was jailed for raping his female clients. He offered us the privilege of using this grim dungeon. When I told Mark about the invitation, he snorted. Not likely. I know the dirty bastards drilled a hole in the ceiling so he can watch. One day, Jen announced he had something interesting for me to watch. It turned out to be a gory but entirely convincing snuff movie. Fake, I discovered years later. Then there was a real-time film of an execution by electric chair where smoke plumed up from the man's head and his eyeballs boiled. While these unwholesome vignettes played on the video, Genesis watched me, watching them like a naughty schoolboy, gleefully waiting for his maiden aunt to scream at the plastic spider. No stranger to shock tactics myself, I deliberately disappointed him. 
feigning a yawn. So, yikes. And uh, Genesis would say of the nursery, A nursery was a room in a topi house exclusively dedicated to magical rituals and sigilization. The topi station in London's nursery had a rather gothic Baroque decor that included an old Victorian dentist chair that had been used in a dentist that had seen its dentist owner commit sex crimes on it before he was caught and convicted and sent to prison. Just as the process's flirtation with implied satanic beliefs and other sensualist mischief ended up biting them nastily, so Topi's amusement with the darker aspects of humanity also backfired in a hauntingly similar way. And so, Topi Station in London would eventually be raided by Scotland Yard after uh, rumors of sexual satanic ritual abuse began to emerge and a lot of it had to do with a performance art video that had been filmed that was a mock sra um, thing and it was proven to be fake but anyways it did lead to them getting raided and when the house was raided they would find a vast collection of occult writings and all kinds of graphic photos and videos involving anything from murder, mutilation, sexual deviance, necrophilia, and, of course, Nazi imagery. And so, in short, this was just everything that Genesis was kind of obsessed with, and it all relates to uh, what Fiona Powell describes as the power and mechanics of evil. And so Genesis Peorge would have to flee to San Francisco after all of this, and she would uh, continue to go about doing all kinds of weird stuff. She would be in Rick Rubin's house when it caught on fire and receive some burns from it, and she would win a huge settlement of over, I want to say it was like $1.5 million or something like that, from Rick Rubin, the producer of a ton of stuff and she would take this money and use it for all kinds of plastic surgeries she would have all of her teeth removed and be replaced with gold teeth and put the video of this procedure done as an art installation um, she would eventually get divorced and there was um, rumors from one of her ex-lovers maybe it was her first wife that she was abusive um, one of the stories that I can recall was that apparently she dropped a cinder block from like the second story attempting to hit them in a supposed attempt to kill them and was just in general kind of abusive and manipulative um, then she would get married again and towards the end of her life she would take undertake what was called the Pandrogeny project that she named um, she named it the Pandrogeny project where um, both her and her new wife would receive plastic surgery after plastic surgery in an attempt to look more like the other. And so that's uh, that's interesting. And I mean, I could go on talking about Genesis Peorge all day. Um, another person who could have a whole episode to themselves. Um, I don't know what to say as far as the satanic ritual abuse uh, goes. Most people conclude that this was, you know, false and 
um, that this comes from kind of mischaracterizations and uh, people who had an axe to grind with uh, Genesis P. Orridge's uh, art. But also a lot of what Genesis P. Orridge considered art, I'm not sure I would consider art. I consider talking about some of the uh, rituals and performance art pieces that she would do in concerts that they'd perform and in art installations and stuff. But a lot of it is so disgusting. It's just not even worth mentioning. If you are a sick freak who wants to learn about it, you can look it up yourself. I'll just uh, say a series of words and you can imagine how all of it relates to each other. Chicken heads, maggots, vomit, semen, blood, milk. There you go. Let your imagination run wild. So that's the kind of uh, stuff that she was getting up to with her art. Um, but there are honestly a couple good songs by Psychic TV that I saw. A lot of it is not good at all. But I'm probably not going to do much listening to it because I don't want to feel like I'm being uh, spiritually attacked. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, like I said, I could keep going on and on about Genesis Peord. She was friends with Damien Eccles. They would tour together and give speak, um, do speaking events with one another. And they would also star in a short film with one another in a short film called IRL for In Real Life. But anyways, there's a little bit about Genesis Peord who modeled the psychic... Um, the Temple of Psychic Youth after the process and borrowed a lot of their aesthetics has probably the largest collection of process writings and memorabilias. And I can't remember, it wasn't too long ago, but Genesis P. Orge died. So, you know, you could say like rest in piss or something like that, but she would only be too happy to have that. So we'll just leave that where it is. But, um, yeah, how come all these freaks get not only into Satanism and stuff like that, but there's always the Nazi stuff, too. Um, but anyways, I just really thought that calling the ritual sex playroom the nursery was particularly disgusting. And it doesn't reflect well on you when you're someone who ends up having allegations of SRA against you. But, you know, like I said, most people say that there are no truth to those claims. But anyways, uh, that will conclude our conversation about Genesis Peorge, and that will also conclude our episode about uh, the follow-up episode about the history of the Process Church of the Final Judgment. And in the following episodes, we will get into the Charles Manson stuff and into the Son of Sam stuff, and we will um, look at both sides and we'll be critical of both sides and say, can we believe Mari Terry and Ed Sanders? Do we believe the people who are skeptics and say that there is no substance to their claims? We will get into all of that and much more. And I will also get into, because there's still some stuff that I uh, want to talk about that's um, in relation to the process, but not directly related to, uh, you know, the Ed Sanders, Mari Terry claims, but stuff like uh, Sirhan Sirhan, 
and him visiting the Process Church, Whitley Streber and his connection to the Process Church, and a couple of other people. So perhaps after we do the Manson episode and we do the uh, Son of Sam episode, perhaps we'll do a kind of, uh, what would you call it, a retrospective on the Process Church, one final look. Or maybe I'll just include that stuff up top in the next episode real quick, just because I do want to get into that just a little bit and share that information. But I'm already at over an hour and a half with this episode. My brain is fried. I have gone through all too many notes like for today's episode, so I just don't think that we're going to be able to get to that today. Um, Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, I'd really appreciate you guys leaving a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whatever you're listening on. The more reviews, the better. Gets it seen by more people. Looks more respectable to people who are browsing podcasts. Share it with a friend if you enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoyed any of them. Share your favorite episode with a friend. Get it out there so that way we can start the temple of the thing observers and you guys can send me all your money and bodily fluids just kidding i'm not going to give you an address and i would never ask for your bodily fluids because i don't need them oh anyways i hope you guys enjoyed it i had fun with this episode hopefully you guys had fun too if you want to follow me on twitter I am Thing Observer. This has been Things Observed. Hope y'all enjoyed it. Love y'all. Take care. Talk to you soon. Sometimes just drifting in this simple world Like a country dream asleep to discussion The numbness of content I see you smile Drifting like a country stream my little girl, precious and pure As I fall back into softness and sleep You caress me with simple love You possess me with simple love You caress me with simple love You possess me with simple love Place becomes time, space becomes mine And always like this robe Green like a country dream You surround me and cover me me with that special simple love Sometimes just drifting like a country stream Precious and pure I see you smile Asleep to discussion of this simple word The numbness of content Drifting like a country scene as I fall back into softness and sleep. You possess me with simple love. You caress me with simple love. You caress me with simple love. You possess me with simple love. Place becomes time, space becomes mine, and always like this road. Green like a country dream, you surround me. And cover me, protect me, and caress me with that special, simple love
caress is just a touch And you touched my heart And now we're together You and I will never part Sometimes just drifting in this simple world Like a country dream Asleep to discussion The numbness of content I see you smile Drifting Like a country stream My little girl Precious and pure As I fall back Into softness and sleep You caress me with simple love You possess me with Simple love You caress me with simple love You possess me with simple love Place becomes time Space becomes mine And always like this road Green like a country dream You surround me And cover me Protect me And caress me With that special simple love 